And welcome to Fascinating Nouns. Now, if you are listening to this transmission, we are still the galaxy's most trusted source for incredible people, places, things, and ideas. Now, together we arrive at this curious nexus point, and we will explore the strange, unusual, offbeat, bizarre, intriguing, interesting, invigorating, quirky, quaint, quizzical, weird, wild, wacky, the fun, the frivolous, and the fringe, plus all the spaces in between. I am your host, Daniel J. Glenn. Hello, Fascination. Welcome to the show. So we have arrived. It is finally time for our Halloween episode. And we have quite a theme going this year. You know, two, uh, two, two episodes ago, we talked about The Exorcist, one of the most pivotal horror films of all time. You know, our last episode was about horror hosts in old time radio. And this week, we're going to do a broad sweeping horror movie extravaganza. Uh, we've got the perfect guy for the job. Brad Weissman wrote the book Horror Unmasked, and he walks us through the history of horror from the 1800s until today. And there are so many movies that I love that I cannot wait to talk about. So let's get into this. Brad. Thank you so much for being on the show today. The first thing I want to ask is, you know, you, you said this, the, the book is called Horror Unmasked from, I believe it's a history of terror from Nosferatu to Nope. Yes. Now, were those really the beginning and the end or is this, were you going for alliteration here? Uh, that was my publisher and they were going for that alliterative <laughs> uh, thing there. Actually, the first yeah. horror movie was made in 1896. So. Uh, okay. So that's. uh so, so that's and that wasn't Nosferatu, obviously. That was something very, very different. Right. Nosferatu was really the starting point for the whole thing, I think. And so when uh, I, here's a, here's a question for you about the the title. I mean, it sounds like you you. I mean, talk about a horror movie. You know, your control was wrestled away from you uh, when it came to to the title. But horror unmasked is. I think that's kind of an, an interesting way to describe what's going on here. Because do you think that all horror wears a mask, really? Huh, interesting. Well, I do think that horror is one of the most subversive genres of film that, that are out there because okay. you you uh, you get to uh, have the usual horror movie moments in there, but it leaves you mm -hmm. lots of leeway for social commentary and for observation of things going on in our culture that mm -hmm. wouldn't aren't addressed by anybody else so right. or anything else. So horror does that for us in a very, in a way that it, we're not, you know how seeing some movies is like taking medicine, you know, it's sure. like you're, right. glad you yeah. saw, you're glad you saw it, but you don't have to see it again. Horror movies, yeah. you can consume them over and over again. Oh, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. I would say Back to the Future for me is that, I mean, I could watch Back to the Future, you know, a, yeah. a, a million times. I mean, that right. is easily, easily my favorite movie. Uh, well, so, I mean, do you, so do you think you wear a mask? I mean, are you think, uh, is there a horror that le resides deep inside of you that huh. uh, you'd like to admit here on a national podcast? Well, gee, uh, uh, let's see. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, Where the body's gives, buried, Brad, is what I'm asking. gives me horrors. Uh, <laughs> well, I think, I think I was voted the whitest person at my school in high school. So, uh, yeah. I, <laughs> also, most likely to be eaten by a bear. Uh, so. Now, when you say whitest person, does that mean you were the most uncool? Because that's typically what that means. Or were you literally the most pale, uh, like a kind of, you know, lobster in the sun kind of guy? Yeah, I was the epitome of like the the, the pale person. <laughs> In a, yeah. in a, and I grew Don't up do in, roofing. Yeah. <laughs> I grew up in the suburbs of Denver, which is a really white environment. So, uh, yeah. So I got people. out of there as soon as I possibly could. Yeah, kind of like Village of the Dam. A lot of a lot of pale people there. A lot of pale. People. Uh, well, so before we get into horror, I'm going to see if I can horrify you. Let's talk about you for a second here, Brad. Let's sure. talk about your history. Let's talk about your past, man. Let's see if we can pull any skeletons out of that old closet okay. of yours. See what we got going on here. Uh, so you mentioned, you know, um, briefly uh, before we came on here that you spent 15 years performing improv, uh, you know, stand up, sketch comedy, and all that. Uh, there's a strong connection between comedy and horror. Uh, you know, some interestingly, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. Our body reacts in, in uh, the formulas for each are very similar. Our body reacts in equal and opposite kind of ways. So um, do you see that connection at all? Uh, did you study that connection? Was it a part of your comedy? Yeah, uh, I didn't use that connection in my comedy. I used it in the book, though. There is a, a whole yeah. chapter on horror comedy. 
And mm-hmm. uh, I think the comedy and horror, they, they're, they, they don't lie. Like, mm-hmm. if you don't laugh, it's not funny. If you don't scream, mm-hmm. it's not scary. Right. So comedy yeah. and horror have, have kind of have that in common. And, of course, pornography as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> if you don't get the yes. desired reaction, it didn't. Sure. It was not successful. And surprisingly, right, right. <laughs> a number of directors of horror in the '60s and '70s started off as porn directors. Yeah, I read that. I found that very interesting in the book. Ooh. Not surprising. I mean, the number of. I mean, the the sequel formula for both is very similar. You right. know, lots of sequels in horror, lots of sequels <laughs> in pornography. So I hear. Uh, <laughs> And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting similarities between between all of these worlds. Uh, well, let's see, you know, let's see some of your stand up. Can you do some of it right now? Oh, I haven't done it since 1995. So, okay. I, so would that gone. be horrifying for you it's if I made gone. you <laughs> if I made you perform it immediately? <laughs> uh, you also play the ukulele. Um, I do play the ukulele. Very do you have one handy? Can I can I get you to do that? Oh, in the, it's in the other. I don't have it with me. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm trying to horrify you. I'm trying to terrify you here. Yeah. I don't know if it's working or not. Um, oh, here's one. Uh, uh, you also apparently like to milk goats. Do you have a goat handy? Yeah, I do not have a goat handy. We do have a goat handy about eight miles west of here. And uh, I can pause this. We can come back if you can <laughs> yeah. go grab the. Is that <laughs> okay? Add an option. My- All right. Well, so uh, these are all things, you're very eclectic tastes here. Uh, last one, this one really, you know, when I was going through some of the things that you've done before, this one I really liked. As a journalist, it's you said you've covered uh, the grand opera uh, to, to wrestling. I'm a huge pro wrestling fan. So, you know, are you really, did you really cover pro wrestling? Because I, I can sniff out, you know, a, a poser uh, well, from this, a mile away. This was specifically midget wrestling, or as it's called oh, now, okay. or as it's called now, micro wrestling. It's right. I was going to say, I think they've got a different name for it. Yeah. incorrect to say midget wrestling. But sure. Yes, I did go to one of those one of those bouts, and it was amazing. Yeah, they're pretty cool. That's really, it's so bizarre. Yeah, it's weird. It's weird, but it's, uh, it's really, it's a lot of fun. And, yeah. you know, those dudes go all out. Yeah, they, they were they like really, hitting each other with folding chairs and stuff. And these, <laughs> yeah. and these are little guys, you know, they're not, yeah. they're not full grown people. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's it's pretty intense. Uh, and the last thing I got to mention here, you know, mostly because I like to fit in a shameless plug for myself as early as I possibly can. Uh, you do you're very into old time radio. Oh yeah, and I just so. did a whole episode on old time radio mm-hmm. and horror hosts. It was the most. Uh, it's not it, as of this filming, it's not out yet, but it will be when people are listening to this. So I recommend. Okay. Both you and them go check it out. Yeah, uh, I I got way into this, Brad. So um, when did you start with that? Do you, were you like a, a you obviously you were probably weren't a kid when it came out, but you must well, have came to it later in life. There was a uh, there was a pioneering radio show collector and writer and broadcaster mm-hmm. named John Dunning who lived in Denver, and he mm-hmm. put on a weekly old time radio show. And when I was about twelve, my father and I just kind of happened onto it, twisting the dial, and. Mm-hmm. And there he was, and he'd do three or four hours of, of old time radio every week. Wow, which was which was great. It was a huge education, and so I grew up very fond of that whole genre, especially the horror. The horror radio shows, I think, are the best. Yeah, they're really good. I mean, I I remember my um my uh, I think it was my grandmother gave me a list of audio tapes, but they were comedy, so it was like Abbott and Costello, Burns and sure. Allen, Grayson Allen, you know. Charlie uh, McCarthy. Uh, uh, oh my goodness, McCarthy. Yeah, Charlie McCarthy. Sure. No, no, but it wasn't just him. I can't believe who had his. Uh, who was the, uh, there you go, Bergen yeah, McCarthy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, th- th- those were a lot of fun. So comedy and horror. You know, uh, th- this this goes this goes way back. So now, why horror for you? Like, I mean, this f- horror is a strange thing. You know, kind of like pro wrestling. You know, it, it attracts yeah. very specific people for very specific reasons. And I'm curious, you know, you've literally written the book, multiple books on this. So wh- why did this, why did you, what attracted you to it? Well, uh, it really results from a trip to the library. I, I wanted to get a book about the history of horror all around the world. I mean, I knew a lot about horror in America and England, but I didn't know anything about Spain or Italy or Japan or Germany mm-hmm. or any of those places. So I went to the library and try as I might, I could not find a book that covered that. So I thought, well, write the book you want to read. And so I wrote, wrote that book because I, I saw a need there. 
Well, now hold on a second here, Brad. I cannot. I, I'm hoping that the reason is not strictly academic and functional and pragmatic. So there was no interest in horror beforehand. Uh, I had I had an interest in horror. I I like uh, I prefer the old horror of the 30s and 40s. Mm-hmm. So I was very well grounded in that. But it, as far as the time period from that on, I was a little underdeveloped. So it took me uh, it took me about four years to write the book and. Uh, about half of that was watching movies, so <laughs> not, a, not a bad way to not a, a bad way to spend an afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> it was quite a few. So, uh, and so you, I love them. Yeah. Well, so I mean, because I, I I was I read that you you know used to watch local creature features in your yes. basement. You got super interested in that, and you read Forrest J. Ackerman's uh, famous monsters oh, of Filmland yes. yes. and stuff like that, which is published monthly. So um, you know that the, I, so I, I thought there was more of a connection here, Brad. I think Not just as an author looking to, you know, fill a niche and fill his line, his pocketbooks with that old <laughs> leprechaun gold. Well, it helps that I really love the genre. You know, obviously yeah. you couldn't couldn't do it unless you did that. And those childhood memories were very important and, and uh, were very helpful in, in like spurring me on to get to the yeah. end of the project. Right. I mean, you can't, I don't think you can, I mean, I guess some people can, I couldn't do a project that I wasn't passionate about, you know, from, from some degree, but you did a lot of research on this. You know, I came up, I'm going to quickly, uh, talk about, well, I'm going to save this till later, but I, you know, I collected while reading your book, a genre list. Uh, I did this, I did a, um, I'm not really into music, but I did a whole episode on underground music and I came up with a list of strange genres of music, which, oh, you know, are only rivaled by strange genres of film, subgenres, right. I should say. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to shoot a couple at you because we're going to get to them as we go. But I'm just going to here's what here's a couple of the things I came up with. Uh, I've got Psycho Bitty, uh, Galio, which I think is uh, I'm yeah. not pronouncing that's Italian. Uh, I think it's Giello. Giello, eco horror, folk horror, luchador films, rancho gothic, splatter. What is this called? No, this is a good one. Splat, splat stick, splat uh, torture porn, J horror, holiday horrors. So these are some of the genres. I think hopefully we're going to get into. Uh, oh, Psychobitty was my favorite, my favorite one to, to read. Uh, but I'm going to keep going with you here because there's one other thing I stumbled across here, Brad, that I found very disturbing and very interesting. Uh, and speaking of morbid, you know your Twitter account seems to exclusively track celebrities who have recently died. And then it turns out you run a website called Obit Patrol, yes. which is the Society of Professional Obituary Writers. Uh, what's going on with that, man? Uh, well, what's happening I, here? I'm a member of the of the uh, the brother and sisterhood of obituary writers. <laughs> and uh, Is that a real thing? The brotherhood of? Yeah. Uh, oh, that's fantastic. Tell me yes. about this. Uh, well, it's just everybody who writes obits across the country, and they, they just band together to have a to just talk to each other online, and occasionally sure. they'll do a, an event somewhere where people can get together and meet each other in person. But uh, but it's a nice fraternity slash sorority for sure. And what the reason I started running obits was uh, seeing baseball players, not huge marquee players, but everyday baseball players. I see mm-hmm. them pass away. And there's no mention of them in the newspaper. And I thought, here are guys who, who made it to the big leagues, who yeah. had their 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 chance and did whatever they did. Even if it's one at bat, they made it to the majors. And I wanted to give those guys a little acknowledgement. And starting from that, I started to think, well, what about all these other people? These people that you never hear about, but who lived yeah. extraordinary lives. And you and by hooking people up to their obits, I hope that I can show people. Uh, Positive lives, lives of accomplishments. Right. Yeah. That's why I don't have generals. I don't have, you know, I, I don't have dictators. I don't put the evil people in there. I keep them out. I try to keep it inspiring if possible. So it's really, yeah. It's, a, it's mostly it's, celebrities. I imagine it's mostly fluff. Mostly it's starting to get into politics. It depends yeah. on what side of the, the issue you're on. Whether right, exactly. You know, but you can't go wrong with with celebrities. Uh, that's pretty. I mean, I will tell you that, you know, if you were running this website and you were the one bumping off these people, uh, you know, that would make a great horror film. Yes, you, know, you run a website yeah, to, and, and, to get, and to get idea. material. Yeah, it's not bad. that's a great idea. It's not bad. Not awesome. bad. Uh, now, have you chosen the person in your brotherhood who's going to write your obit? Huh. I think I will leave that. To my son, okay. uh, I, I wrote that my mother's. 
I wrote I wrote my mother's obituary, and so it's mm-hmm. kind of a family a family tradition, I guess. Wow, that's I mean that's kind of cool. I mean dark, but that's what we're talking about here. Yeah. But, uh, but that's pretty cool. I will tell you that it must be difficult to write an obituary about someone who, you know, was maybe uh, let's say controversial or uh, or maybe just in their life. And they, you know, some people liked them. Not everyone did because every obituary has got to sound like, you know, they were kind of life of the party. Right. Right. Exactly. Like there was an there was an obituary recently of a of a somewhat famous American rock musician who and I posted his, his obituary and then people were like sending me messages saying he really liked him young. And I found out later that this <laughs> particular person had enjoyed going out with girls who were way too young. So I was like, oh, well, we got the bad and the good. Yeah. How do you, how do you, uh, how do you, uh, you know, how do you spin doctor that? I think I just, I, 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 I <laughs> don't. life. <laughs> I, I, just, I sit there embarrassingly and, and think, what have I done? Oh my God. Yeah. Right. <laughs> What'd you get yourself into? Uh, that's great. I mean, well, you, look, once you discover that, that is truly horrifying. And, you know, you do write a definition of horror. That particular situation may fall into that category. Yeah. Uh, but what I like about your book is the definition you have is pretty straightforward. You know, it's anything that deals with darker impulses. You know, right. uh, factors outside of our normal experience, right? And is and is threatening. Yes. And this is pretty similar. And you have this great little uh, rule of thumb here, where if you take away the supernatural element, you just have a crime film or psychological thriller. Right. If you take away the threat, you just have a fantasy film. Very true. And as an added little side note, if you take the H out of threat, you get a treat. <laughs> That's true. Which I discovered by Ooh. mistyping it on my notes. <laughs> so, but I love this, Brad. I love all the stuff in the book, and it's very simple. And I think it, I think it works. You know, like quantum mechanics. I think it works most of the time, even though yeah. it's simple, but can be a little weird too. Yeah. Thank you. You know. Uh, yeah. So, how did you come up with that? I mean, you had to boil down a bunch into the into, to distill that. You know. Uh. Well. I mean, there, there's about the same proportion of bad horror films as there are to bad regular films. So you have to like go through a lot and see a lot of crap and get it out of your, get it into your system and then again out of your system. Uh, but then to think and after reviewing all the data, it simply came down to, okay, I've got a couple of dozen chapters. I've got to limit myself. I can only go to, Two, three hundred pages. So, mm-hmm. who are the most significant actors in each of these right. time periods? Mm-hmm. And I, unfortunately, I did have to leave a lot, a lot of people out. It is just yeah. I am just hitting the high points with that. So, yeah. Well, I think I think you do a good job. You know, and you even talk about you know the creatures in horror. You know that throughout or throughout history, I should say. Uh, you know, you've got a man-made monster. You know, vengeful right. ghosts, otherworldly predators, insatiable killers, the persistent undead, evil twins, shape-shifting seducer. That's a fantastic one, by the way, Brad. Uh, and, you know, they, they, these things embody the dark, the dangers that lurk outside of our everyday experience. You know, right. speaking of dangers lurking on our everyday experience, we've got one in the background there. Yes. <laughs> right on the edge. Yeah, Cujo is out there. Yeah, holy, holy cow. But this is, you know, I think that that's a, also a really good distillation of the archetypes of horror. Like, what do we see in each film? And everything that we see is kind of some iteration of all of this. Rarely is anything, you know, new. They're all just right. spins, modern takes, you know, on this type of stuff. Yeah, I think the most recent, uh, the more recent uh, genres would be probably body horror from Cronenberg. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Uh, Cronenberg started that subgenre. Uh, there was a weird genre that lasted for about three years called post horror in which, uh, mm-hmm. people made it's a, it's a horror film, but it's yeah. a serious horror film. It deals yeah. with serious grown up adult issues and there yeah. are complex characters and people actually in relationships with each other. And that lasted for a few years, and people said, "No, I want to watch the Nun too." <laughs> right? Yeah. Well, you know, I, it's funny because some of these things, because there's a couple ways to look at it, right, Brad? I mean, you look, at, you have either these are splinters and kind of like um, 
schisms in, in the horror world where they people just kind of do their own very unique niche. Or you have an evolution. You can look at it like, well, really horror's evolving. And as things get better, how you scare people, you know, is has to change. That's and very so true. post post horror, I think, is more an evolution than and I think a positive evolution, as far as I'm concerned, than than it is like a genre. Because I think a genre kind of I don't want to say dismisses it, but I think it marginalizes right. what is actually an advancement. Like you mentioned Jordan Peele a lot. And it's funny because I like Get Out, but I didn't go bananas over it like other people did. Right. But I, I do like his body of work. And I think he is one of these guys who's really pushing the boundaries and making it more legitimate. And I right. don't think that, and I, don't, I like, I really like Nope. And I wouldn't want to see that just, you know, kind of, oh, well, that's post-horror. It's just this, you know, great complex movie with a lot of people that, and that's going to go away and we're just going to have like, you know, Friday the 13th slasher, the same storyline, same formula over and over again. You know, right. anyway, I, I didn't mean to rant here. That's um, okay. But I like I, I, I don't I, I would like to hope I would hope that this is, you know, the future, not a small little three year period. Well, hopefully if people can can write, it's hard because people don't want to write up to the audience's level of intelligence. People I think the pr- production yeah. companies often underestimate our intelligence and then and then give us a kind of a stupid product in the hopes that we don't mind. But uh, <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong, Brett. You're not but wrong. But there is, but you know, with A24 and those other production companies doing great horror right now, and uh, Hammer Horror is coming back in England, which mm-hmm. I, thought, I thought was great. So yes. it, it does proceed slowly, 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 and it's and these hybrid horror slash non horror films are are fascinating to watch. Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think it's interesting because one of the things I've always noticed is that horror is a place where you can be really creative, you know, and I think with dramas, it's kind of like it's, it's not the same old, same old, but it's just it's, you know, what can we do to, you know, make someone cry or to make them feel emotions? And I, I'm for dramas. I'm a genre guy. Like, I love all genre. T- I just oh, anyway, too, since yeah. the beginning. And, and I think horror's interesting because you can do really creative things and sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. You know, Saw is a perfect example for me. And I'm kind of getting ahead of myself here, but I'm going to run with it. The first Saw movie I thought was inventive. Yes. You know, from a studio standpoint, it's very affordable to make. Sure. And it had a it was a very different feel. And because it was so good, and this is true of all of these, anything that started a sequel, that includes Nightmare on Elm Street, that includes uh, you know, even the first Friday the thirteenth. Th- these are interesting attempts at horror. And then people say, like, oh, let's turn it into a money-making machine as Saw right. 10 comes out, right? And yeah. so you know, I, I think that that to me is lost. And I think people forget that horror can actually be incredibly a creative way, or at least an outlet for creative expression that isn't allowed in other genres. Absolutely. And then again, that, that speaks to the subversive part of it. Mm -hmm. It's like, you can, you can sneak in your messages, which is, which is great. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, sometimes you can hit people over the head with it, you know, but, uh, but sometimes they're snuck it. People sneak them in there. Like with Midsommar, I mean, talk about Mm -hmm. me being a, the whitest person in, in, uh, in the culture that that showed you like white people are crazy. Yeah. <laughs> watch, not watch, a lie. Out the, watch out for the Scandinavians. Yeah. I mean, get out, did the same thing. <laughs> oh yeah. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to, before I, we got to dive into your book here. Um, okay. and before we do, I want to talk about one thing. I just read this article about leprechaun and what's interesting about the movie Leprechaun, it's the 30th anniversary this year. And as I was oh. reading this article, a couple things jumped out at me. And I want to get your take on them and see if this influenced anything in your book. Uh, the, the director talks about how he was lucky enough to get Jennifer Aniston and how right. he basically had to uh, trick the studio into hiring her. Uh, he got Warwick Davis, who, yeah. who's amazing. amazing. Uh, and, you know... He says back in the video, you know, in the quote unquote big video days, a horror movie was easy to do if you wanted to break into directing. He also thanks George Lucas because Warwick Davis was doing Willow at the time. So he had to get his permission. He thanked the vice president at the time, Dan Quayle, for (laughs) expediting Warwick's travel from, you know, from the UK to, to the United States. And, you know, 
they the studio didn't want Aniston. They had to trick them into thinking she was going to dye her hair blonde because the oh. studio saw that role as having someone with blonde hair. Oh, and having worked in the studio system, I know how stupid some of these creative execs can be, and they would get hung up on that. And I'm saying all this because this is one. This is the movie Leprechaun. It was a big hit. You know, uh, one of these kind of movies that kind of came out of nowhere. But I imagine through your research, this unique story that is a formula that can't be recreated for success, right? That must, you must have come across a million of these stories while writing your book. And I think it's these nuances that make this type of history really compelling for me. Right. Yeah. If you look into the nooks and crannies of the horror genre, Mm -hmm. you'll find lots of um, really, really, really accomplished works that haven't been celebrated at all. Um, right. Like, uh, oh, I'm trying to think of the one that was in 2008 called May about uh, a young misfit girl who assembles a, a playmate for herself out of the bodies of her of people she likes. Stuff like that. <laughs> oh, oh, or, oh, that's one crazy. called Society from it's the like 80s. Wednesday Addams. Uh, yeah, that's right. Society. There's a film called Society about aliens from outer space who who uh, who literally eat us. Uh, oh, it's crazy. Rich people. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's nuts. So so you came across a lot of these like little. So so when it comes to the movies themselves, did you get into any of the like the the so with with I think with with any type of sudden success, especially in 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 entertainment. The, the conditions under which that success happens are extraordinarily unique. I think Leprechaun, that's <clears throat> the story I just said, kind of fits that bill. Right. Did you come across any, I imagine there's a million others, but did you come across that, you know, these formulas or these weird stories about a movie that's really successful that, you know, couldn't be repeated uh, even though people tried or would want to? Let's see. I, when I think about films that are unique like that, I think of, I think of things like The Howling, which okay. which uh, kind of created a new a new way of looking at that genre by piling on all the cliches of all all the old cliches of the genre and having fun with them. Mm-hmm, uh, right. Of course, anything by Cronenberg is definitely going to be a, a game changer. Yeah. <laughs> and I hear he's going to do another film, so I hope, is that I hope right? he will. I think so. Oh, that's exciting. Well, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre, when you hear about like the behind the scenes stuff, you know, the scene where they're all at the dinner table. Right. Uh, I think that was, you know, 18 hours of straight shooting, you know, and when the woman's like running around like she's borderline delusional while they're shooting, <laughs> a, you know, while they're shooting a movie where she's supposed to be delusional. I mean, true method acting, you know. Right. Uh, these are the type of things you can't really repeat and don't you don't see that in big studio movies. So there's it's an interesting atmosphere because it's kind of indie, you know. Uh, so, so your book, let's talk about this. My, I want to just start out with my favorite part, part of your book and it comes kind of later in it. Chapter 16, where you talk about the most exceptional filmmakers of the era. And you start with, this is the later era. You start with Wes Craven, last house on the left. Right. Toby Hooper, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Right. George Romero, Night of the Living Dead. Yep. And... Bob Clark, Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. Yeah. Now, for, for people listening, this might be one of those classic Sesame Street sketches of which one of these is not like the other. But Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. I know you put this as the beginning of horror comedy, which I, I will tell you, I'm not going to mince any words here. That is my least favorite genre. I cannot wow. stand horror comedies. Okay. Okay. However... That movie, I saw it on a creature feature, you know, much like you, introduced right. to horror during those times, uh, Channel 50 in the Chicagoland area <laughs> with my grandmother's house. That movie actually terrified me. Huh? And growing up, I remember, I always remembered it because it sounds like, the title sounds like a schlock horror film that is going to be terrible. Right. And some would say that it is. But, but as a kid, that and Phantasm, if yeah. you look at them now, they're all they're they're, they're not great, but those yeah. movies, Brad, terrified me and yeah. and completely changed my outlook on on life, frankly. Sure. I'm sure. Yeah, that's Bob Clark is a very interesting example because he's yeah. so, sometimes he's the greatest director who ever lived. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> when he makes Christmas story, 
or mm-hmm. pork, but he also made porkies and yeah. he also made baby geniuses too. So, you know, the guy was not, <laughs> he was not very discriminating. No, but he was, no, an but- ex- he was an excellent horror director. Yeah. And this one, it's just funny you put that in there because each one of those, you know, they're, they all created a genre or, or started a movement that became something else. Right. And, you know, and in truth, he does kind of belong. I mean, through the argument you made, he does belong on that list, but I don't, not everyone would agree with that. I think that's true. Yeah. I think unless uh, people don't want to call somebody a horror director, unless that's all they do, like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to kind of ghettoize yourself. I think about M. Night yeah. Shyamalan. You know, mm-hmm. you know, you you know, he makes his movies, and if you like the kind of movie, you're going to see it, and if you don't like the kind of movie, you're never going to see it. Yeah, so it's it's hard. He, he's an interesting character because he kind of got pigeon. He kind of weirdly pigeonholed himself. Yes, and you know, he's one of these much maligned directors that. I've come around to, I think he had a whole string of really terrible movies right. and I think he tried to repeat, you know, kind of the accidental success of the sixth sense. From what I understand, right. even the ending was an accident. He kind of stumbled into that twist wow. and, and then, you know, once he realized it was a success, I think it was based on like necessity almost. It wasn't like okay. worked into the script. And then he, you know, he kind of pigeonholes himself into having movies where you have to have this big reveal, this big twist at the end. And I think he's a much better director than people give him credit for. And I think a lot of his later movies, you know, show that a knock at the cabin. uh, You know, I have this other podcast about pop culture science uh, and I'll put a link to it in the show notes here, but we just did a whole episode on the apocalypse and a knock at the cabin, which is one of his recent movies, which I thought was absolutely fantastic. So it was um, good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think he's good. And and I agree that he's, you know, he's a guy who got pigeonholed into horror directors, but not everyone needs to. You know, I think it can be part of your repertoire. Uh, But let's go back. Let's take a one. Let's take a stroll through history, Brad. Let's go through history. Uh, this, this, <laughs> uh, the silent era, the early days. Um, actually, I don't remember, you know, you said that the first horror movie. Oh, actually, I have it here in my notes. Uh, George Millier, who did the first sci-fi and the first horror movie. Right. 1896, The Haunted Castle. It's on YouTube. So is A Trip to the Moon in 1902. Right. This guy, I mean, first of all. He is an amazing director, really, as far as special effects go, was, you know, at the forefront. Uh, but tell me about The Haunted Castle. This is where it all begins, Brad. This is where your journey began, I imagine. Well, yeah. I mean, it's uh, it's it's a trick film. So you have mm. the kind of thing where you have a person there for a second, and then they vanish in a puff of smoke. Right. And so it's just a couple of people being... Uh, being bedeviled by ghosts and there's a little uh, there's a little uh, a little person not a midget mm-hmm. little person mm-hmm. little with person. a pitchfork who pokes them mm-hmm. in the behind and that's mm-hmm. basically the movie <laughs> that's it spoiler alert <laughs> they, appear, they disappear they get poked in the butt with a pitchfork yeah and, and then and then they're done so no yeah. not big on plot <laughs> well, what's interesting about these early days, and I did, a, you know, I, for I'm doing a lot of shows for Halloween. I did a whole episode on The Exorcist as it celebrates its 50th anniversary. Right. I put a link to that as well in the show notes. Uh, the Exorcist is interesting because, you know, that did a lot of the same things that this movie does, which is religious themes. Right. Demons are the horror. Right. And so as horror movies start in, you know, this puritanical country we call the United States. Oh, I guess George Millier was French, oh, fair, in, in fairness. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, at the, but at this time, you know, this is what's horrifying to people, is the thought of going to hell, the devil, oh, yeah, and demons, right? And that's yep. like kind of where we start. That's like the first horror is, you know, the devil, supernatural, ghosts right. type of stuff, right? Absolutely. Um, so was this, in this, so how long does this really go? The, this you know, when does horror become something else? How how long do we go along this timeline? I think you go until I think you go until Nosferatu. I really think that really? that's that's the place where you, where you started. So uh, because horror was pretty unsophisticated up until that point, but yeah. then with Nosferatu, you really see uh, F. W. Murnau, the director, really going to town on on the story, and the, it's actually very. Funny that that movie was originally titled Dracula, and is that right? And the uh, yeah. Bram Stoker's wife, Bram Stoker, who wrote oh, Dracula, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. his wife owned the the licensing permissions, and so yeah. they told her, "We're going to make a movie about Dracula," and she said, "No, you're not." Mm-hmm. And they said, "Hey, how about some money?" And she said, "No, you're still not." So they had to change it to Nosferatu. 
So it's, a, it's definitely a Dracula story, but they couldn't get that's, a sign That's off. a great story, right? I mean, because what you're describing, Brad, is like what all a lot of creatives and writers have been, go, have been going through since that moment, which is when you adapt something from a book or an existing, you know, property, having to get the rights to it is a problem. And oh, if yeah. you can't, you have to then creatively work around, you know, the the story that you've already written and put money into or, or whatever. You you know, a lot of people that get the, sure. like a dog with a bone, they get the idea and they can't get the right. So then you have to change it. But this is great. And it starts with Bram Stoker. Yeah, exactly. And the same thing happened when when England's Hammer Horror Studios started doing Dracula and Frankenstein movies. Mm. Uh, Universal Studios over in America, right. where, where <laughs> right. they all started, they said, yeah. this is terrible. We can't stand this. We insist that you stop adapting our stories. And yeah. then, those, then those movies made a lot of money. And they said, that's okay. You can adapt whatever you want. <laughs> right. Well, here's here's something else interesting I learned in your book. Um, well, two things, actually. I'm going to start with the first one. Sure. And that is the Frankenstein. So I wanted to read all of the classic you know, kind of monster stories, Jekyll and Hyde, Frankenstein, right. Dracula. So I, I read Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And when I was done with the book, I realized that the Frankenstein mythos that we have through movies and TV is almost nothing like the book at all. Right. They kind of touch on the genius that Frank, the, the monster has right. in Bride of Frankenstein a little bit. And that yeah. he's once he learns how to talk, he can start expressing these feelings that he's all that he's feeling inside. Right. But for the most part, I was shocked. I was like, this book has this is nothing like this isn't Frankenstein. So well, actually, no, this is Frankenstein. What we have. Right. And I learned in your book that there was a stage play that was adapted from the book. And then people adapted the movie from that mm -hmm. stage play. Exactly. So in a, in a sense, it's a game of telephone that gave oh, us totally. Frankenstein and ultimately Herman Munster. When you really think about it. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah, and you know, in the in the original Frankenstein book, the uh, the monster's terribly articulate. In fact, he's mm -hmm. probably the most articulate person in the in the book. Yeah, one hundred percent. I think the closest that anybody came to doing that story right, mm -hmm. uh, there was a TV movie version called Frankenstein: The True Story, and I couldn't tell you, <laughs> I, I could, could not tell you when it came up. On, but it was a TV movie, and they fo actually followed the book quite well. Really? Oh yeah. So where did you find that? Where did I mean? I'm impressed with your research skills. Did you go to, oh. to, go to the Library of Congress, or where did you go to find that? Well, I was compiling. I was just compiling Frankenstein movies. I was like, you know, Jesse yeah. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. There's all sure. kinds of weird, weird ass Frankenstein <laughs> films out there, and I was like, Frankenstein: The True Story. Okay, I'll give that a shot. And by golly, yeah. it was pretty pretty decent. Yeah, and, that's, uh, that's if you think about it, uh, uh, Salem's Lot was a TV movie, basically, or a short series for television. Mm -hmm. We think of it as a feature film, and it was cut into a feature film. Oh, you're right. You're totally right. It was, which is really just Nosferatu in a town. Yeah, I mean that. I mean that that monster looks like Nosferatu. 100%. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, yeah, I guess there are a few that are, it's interesting. I mean, when you look at The Shining, you know, The Shining was, I mean, I would say one of the, it's my favorite ghost movie of all time, but definitely mm -hmm. one of my favorite horror movies of all time. And it's funny to me that, you know, that movie, Stephen, who St Stephen King wrote the story, hated the Kubrick version and then did a miniseries version yeah. that I also watched, but that was a TV movie in the 90s. Right. And King you know. was much happier with the with the TV version, I think. Yeah, that nobody remembers. <laughs> yeah, that nobody King. remembers. But I think that happened. I think that happened with the Stand too. He he did the yeah. Stand more than once. Well, even I like as I say in the book, even Stephen King has directed a Stephen King movie. It, he, did Max, <laughs> he did Maximum Overdrive, which is a right. very very mediocre yeah. horror film. Yeah. So anybody can direct a horror film. Come on. That's <laughs> true. I mean, I'm, I'm a big Stephen King fan. Um, and I think you get, you look, it's the role, even the Rolling Stones have a couple of crappy songs. Sure. Right? I mean, like if you've been doing it for 50 years, you, yeah. know, you can have some stinkers in there too. But, uh, you know, he's, he's got a lot of good ones. Uh, so let's, let's get back to Nosferatu. I, okay. I derail yeah. this here because what I love about this particular period. So first of all, I'm enamored with silent film and, you know, in a lot of ways, the visual art of film was almost perfected in the silent era. 
And then sound came in in 26. Right. And I think it came in too early because I think films were really starting to get their their look, you know? Yes. And German expressionism, I think, was, for me, I just loved the artistic, ver you know, all of this. And it worked really well. Version of it worked well with film noir. It worked well with horror. And this, to me, I think it starts with the, doc the cabinet of Dr. Uh, Calgary. Right. Is where the where really first happens. But there's elements in Nosferatu as well. And I think it worked really well for some of the early horror films. Mm -hmm. I, I, you know. I totally agree. Yeah. I think that the, they, their silent films are getting more and more sophisticated and more and more uh, able to do lots of different things that it had not been able to do before. Yes. Really started to take imaginative leaps. And then you're right. Sound came in and all of a sudden we're all stuck on that set. Again, yeah. and you have to speak into the mic and all that good stuff. Yeah. So it, well, it, kind of, it took a while for film to recover from that. Yeah, it stifled it because then you, you're hiding, you know, hiding microphones and flower pots and right. everyone's suddenly huddled around a flower pot. Right. <laughs> it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. You're stuck in the studio. Like you said, you can't just go out, uh, you know, in, in, with a camera into the, into the wilderness and the wild. Uh, so here's, this is something interesting. I've also found your book right on this time, 1921, a movie called Destiny comes out. Right. I've never seen Destiny. I meant to watch it before our conversation. I didn't get to it, unfortunately, but here's what I loved about it. It inspired Hitchcock. It inspired, uh, Brunwell as directors right. and Douglas Fairbanks, very popular at the time, took some of the style and used it in his book, Thief of Baghdad. So right. much so that he even bought out the distribution of destiny in America to make sure that it didn't come out right. before Thief of Baghdad. So he didn't look like he was a thief, even though he was he was the thief of Baghdad. Brad. That's absolutely true. Uh, and, and then you also say that this set the template for anthology film, you know, films right. that tell individual stories. Sure. So this is a horror film that's doing all of this and inspiring people and setting this, the templates I mean, you know, the horror films did this. Right. And it's strange that, that that movie is not known to anybody except academic types. You and I. <laughs> and, and us. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so I haven't seen it. I'm going to try to get a hold of it. But it's, you know, I really love that it's, it's you know. It's a beautiful film. It's visually it? so, so compelling. It's It's great. Yeah, uh, I, I love that. Uh, so Nosferatu comes out um, and, and now we get the universal monsters. And I think when a lot of people think of film and early film horror, the universal monsters kind of come into play here. And I, I, I kind of want to get a sense of how did this come to be? Like, why did Universal decide that they were going to kind of embrace the idea of horror and horror monsters, you know, Dracula, Invisible Man. I think it starts with Phantom of the Opera, right. the Mummy, uh, Wolfman. You know, why did they? Why did they want to do this? Was it counter programming, for lack of a better word? Well, I think Universal found that they had a very successful formula because they were working with Lon Chaney in the silent era, mm -hmm. and and they came up with uh, the Hunchback of Notre Dame, which made a lot of money, big historical epic, tragic kind of horror figure at the center of it, the hunchback. And he did the same thing with... Uh, Phantom? Yeah, with Phantom of the Opera. And so mm -hmm. they, they made tons and tons of money. So they were like, that sounds good. And in fact, Lon, Ch <laughs> Lon, Chaney, Lon Chaney Sr. was supposed to play Dracula. Right. Him, How he crazy died, is that? He, he died of throat cancer before he could do it. Yeah, that's bananas. I mean, think about how... I mean, just Bella Lugosi, who's this kind of this tragic figure in Hollywood, like his entire story would have been rewritten. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Wow. And, and it's it, he had a very weird life because he, he was a Shakespearean actor. He had, yes. of course, in Hungarian, but nonetheless, mm -hmm. Shakespearean. And so his transformation into a bad guy, unfortunately, he just didn't seem to have the kind of the ability to have fun with his reputation and, and make the most of it like Karloff did. Right. And yeah. Goes, he kind of retreated into himself, I think, which is sad. Well, it's interesting because this is a time period where you're pulling people from the stage, right? And, and even today, yes. the stage is considered the art. Most people don't consider right. movies to be art. And I'm talking yeah. very broad strokes here. Very, very sure, broad sure, strokes. Sure. Um, and so it's interesting that, you know, 
you know, I can understand where Lugosi would feel that way. He was typecast. He kind of was always Dracula. You know, he hooks up with Ed Wood, who turns him into right. he's either a mad scientist or, you know, throughout his whole career. But Karloff, what I liked about it is, you know, when playing monsters, he really wanted to play Frankenstein correctly. He wanted to, you know, uh, he wanted to elicit feeling, you know, uh, yes. from, from his audience, you know, pathos. He wanted to, you know, he's this trapped juvenile who can't speak and is trying right. desperately just to communicate with people and everyone's running from him. You know, Bride of Frankenstein, which I just watched last night, which I think is one of your favorite movies. If oh, I'm, yeah, if one I'm, of my favorites, for sure. And I just watched it last night and it's interesting because he, you know, he, uh, no spoiler alerts here, but he, you know, he befriends a person who is blind and then becomes, even though he can't speak, he becomes friends with them. And then that person right. kind of teaches him how to, how to articulate himself, but it's the visual, right. Of Frankenstein that people run from without question. Absolutely. And, you know, Karloff really understands that really he's a tragic victim here. He's not a monster Absolutely. trying to kill people. And that's important. Right. You know, that's very true. Yes, and Vincent Price said much the th same thing. He said, "I don't play villains; I play men, men attacked by fate." <laughs> That's a good line. That's fantastic. So, uh, yeah. So the and even later in and even later in life, Karloff Karloff kind of went the the route of you know um, William Shatner. You know, he kind of embraced <laughs> yes. his kooky nature, right? I mean, I think right. that's the only way to play it. You know. Yeah, I think so. And it's uh, it's unfortunate for for Lugosi that 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 happened. Uh, but so let's fast forward a little bit. So we got okay. Universal Monsters. Uh, you bring up this interesting date here, you know, as we hit the 30s, which is August 5th, 1938. Uh, I don't know if it's the Regina or the Regina. Now it's the L.A. Conservancy, which is right down the street from me. So I'll try to put oh, okay. a, get a picture of that. Now, it, at this date, it showed a triple feature, Dracula, Frankenstein and Son of Kong. That's King Kong. Right. It started as a four day run. Now, do you say that this kind of restarted the genre? It had kind of petered out, and this triple feature kind of invigorated, injected life into this world. Right, because uh, all the, the original universal horror films were made before mm -hmm. the motion picture code was instituted. So okay. they could get away with a lot of scary stuff. Mm -hmm. But once that code began to be instituted, the censors were like, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't. So they said, all right, forget it. We won't do it. Mm -hmm. But then because of that triple feature that ran for over a year, actually. Mm -hmm. Wow. They, they were they were like, we have to get back into the horror business. Back so it, business. money talks. <laughs> Out here it does, <laughs> for, yeah. for sure. And this is, you know, so this period sees, you know, a lot of cheesy sequels and spinoffs. Uh, first, you have the first monster franchises, Son Ofs, Bride Ofs, right. this, this kind of a deal. And then in 1945, I know we're going forward a little bit here. Uh, this is where they kind of become B-movies. And yes. Abbott and Costello meet, insert Universal Monster, you know, right. the very profitable formula that you're talking about. Now, this is, you know, uh, this is where the end of a cycle happens, when things become comedies and become parodies of themselves. Right. You know, this is right before very the post-horror. This is, you know, this right. is the end of everything. And I would argue that even though they kind of died off with Universal Monsters, this feels like and, you know, we've gone through many cycles of horror films in, in this country, but this feels like the first end of the first cycle. Do you, do you think that's true? Like this period right now? No, 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 no. I'm sorry. In 1945, like oh, when okay. Abbott Costello came out yeah, and started having the first comedies. Definitely. Yeah. It wound down. And then when science fiction started coming back in the 50s, finally, we started getting monsters again. Right. But but there was that period from about 1944 to 52, maybe, mm -hmm. where there just wasn't that much horror coming out. It kind of it, it feels like it starts with world, end of World War II, where you have, you know, the first atomic bomb goes off and we enter into the atomic age. Right. And, you know, we finally have something to fear again. Right. I mean, well, I yeah. mean Nazism, I guess, is something to fear. But I think, you know, <laughs> as far as. The destruction of all of humanity through technology, through the right. thing that's supposed to save us. And, you know, this is the first time I think we're – well, Frankenstein is kind of technology is the monster, right? Where we finally have electricity, sure. can create monsters. But this is very interesting because now you've got sci-fi and horror coming together. And this right. creates, you know, a, I think uh, – let's see. You, you break it down like this. Aliens come down and enslave, kill the human race. You had Roswell as well. Uh, I did right. a whole episode on the Roswell crash. Uh, so aliens are in the zeitgeist. 
uh, monsters are, scientific experiments that awaken something with atomic bombs and your, right. your Godzillas, um, mutation for this of the self for science, radiation, you know, getting superpowers uh, or super death, I guess is the way to say that. <laughs> so this is interesting, Brad. And uh, so how do you feel like this restarts everything? You know, this this uh, science and horror fusion. Well, I think that that we when they ran through the original archetypes of Frankenstein, mm-hmm. Dracula, Wolfman, Invisible Man, the mummy, yep. they kind of ran through all the potentialities of that. Mm-hmm. So when science fiction came along, we were liberated again to think of monsters in a new way and to create new and different monsters. Like if you remember the monster from from it came from outer space, the giant uh, the giant homicidal carrot that attacks the, uh, the group at the Arctic space station. It's uh, a carrot. Station. Did you say yeah, he's like a giant carrot? It's uh, James Arness. The guy who played Matt Dillon in Gunsmoke uh-huh. played this alien that was a vegetable, but it was a homicidal vegetable. Got it. Okay. And I don't think I've seen that one. I got, I, there's a bunch of moves I wrote, I, I wrote down that I got to check out from your book. Well, so that's that was one a of very, Yeah. That's a very good one because it's, it's kind of a metaphor for, the encroachments of communism, you know, like right. <laughs> the, the menace we can't destroy and yeah, keep yeah. springing up no matter where we go. Yeah. You said the thing from outer space? Uh, it came from outer space. It came from outer space. Okay. That's okay. Uh, yeah. And, and that's, you know, th- that's really interesting how you, and this is kind of what you're saying where you have, it's these allegories. It's these, you know, these metaphors that that creep into horror films, as you mentioned, communism. You know, in in I just watched The Wolfman, the original Wolfman, which I'd never seen before. And I think you talk about how that's really about Nazism and what's going on in Germany at the time, right? You've got pentagrams yeah. and you've got, you know, men changing into animals. It's very strange because the guy who wrote the script said that uh, for him, the full moon was the equivalent of a swastika. So, okay. So, okay. Uh, so his thing was, I think he was talking about alienation from other people and, mm-hmm. and the encroachment of, of that kind of violence. Well, like what man is capable of. Exactly. Um, and what is, what, what can we change into? And that's really what the Wolfman in that time is about. It's about the primal nature of man coming to the surface, you know, almost like man's, you know, uh, n- natural instincts that are fueled by things that happen in the world, you know? I mean, for, mm-hmm. for him, for, for uh, Larry Talbot, who is the man who becomes the Wolfman, it's, you know, he's, he, what's funny is he becomes infected through an act of heroism. Oh, yeah. Which is what's so interesting, you know? But that, you know, that's, uh, again, uh, yeah, uh, we're both film theory guys. And when it comes to that, you can really start putting interesting spins on everything. And it feels like there's many times, you know, in this, you know, horrible world that we live in at times where an act of heroism exposes you to tortures and traumas that yes. then change your psyche such that you not, don't necessarily become a monster, but you suddenly see the world in ve- a very different way. And some of those primal instincts can come to the forefront. And I think the Wolfman is a perfect example of a man who, in an act of heroism, saw or was infected by something that changed his outlook and he became, you know, primal man, I would say. Yeah, I think so. And that's that's true in that's very true in zombie movies as well. Yes. Very much so. Yeah. It, like if you if you've seen Train to Busan, I'm not sure if I you have. have okay, so yeah. That's the the classic case where people are trying to do the right thing mm-hmm. and right. Are, and get totally screwed because of it. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, you know, and this is later on, you know, I, I, we're, I, we'll hit some of these things as we go because I don't, we're going to run out of time to do the chronological okay. thing I want to do. But let's talk about zombie movies because I do really enjoy zombie movies. And I think this is a great transition because zombie movies, just like you say, have a way of what's interesting is I was just watching, I got hooked on Survivor, right? And so okay. in Survivor, what's interesting is you have these tribes. And you do competitions. And as long as you win, you don't have to vote anybody out, right? But right. as soon as you are required to vote someone out, 
it's like all of the social pressures that existed that you don't really have to worry about because you don't have to do anything. Now, all of a sudden, you have to vote somebody out. Right. And that that puts pressure on all the fissures that exist already, you know? Right. And I think zombie movies are that pressure. You've got a society that's, you know, either just hanging on or, you know, even if it's at the first beginning of the zombie movies. But that threat of zombies forces people in these movies to make decisions that are about their survival versus someone else's survival. And it's those hard decisions that make you say, what would you do in that situation? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I don't think zombie, I don't think anyone does that better than a zombie, anything does it better than a zombie movie. Right, and zombies have gotten better as the years have gone on. I mean, they started, <laughs> yeah, right. they started off very, very slow, very uh, marching, marching mm-hmm. in place. And finally yeah. they started to become a little more articulate and they then they could move and then they could move really fast. Yes. Like World War Z fast, which is yes. horrifying. Yeah. So yeah, like the zombies are turbocharged now. It's crazy. And, and there's uh, so many and there's so many of them, right? Like like the it's about overrun, you know? And in so Night of the Living Dead, another movie that terrified me watching it. I remember I lived out in the country and I watched it over at someone I was being babysat by my neighbor and I watched Night of the Living Dead and I had to walk home, but there was a field behind my house, <laughs> which is very similar to the one you see in the movie. So yeah, I didn't sleep for a while. Um, but that idea of, you know, slowly coming out one at a time, what's interesting about that movie is you really have to get ahead of the problem, right? Because like they say, one zombie is not a, you can take care of one zombie, but two, right. three, four, one mistake and you're dead. And right. that only escalated as zombies got quicker, faster, more difficult, more deadly. You know? Right. And almost in the way that in the Revolutionary War, the British had, you know, red coats and walked in line and were easy <laughs> yeah. to shoot down. Yeah. And now we're like guerrilla, you know, guerrilla warfare terrorists putting bombs on themselves. You know, That's I mean, right. war has changed in some ways. In, I mean, I may have just discovered something here, Brad, but war <laughs> has changed in parallel to how zombies have evolved. Oh, yeah. Definitely. I think about that. Pretty brilliant. Huh? I think, uh, yeah, turbocharged, <laughs> turbocharged zombies. Turbocharged zombies. You're right. You're right. Yeah. If you look if you look at the uh, the Robert Rodriguez film that he made as part of. Uh, oh, right House. Yeah, right that's House right. Yep. Yep. Yeah, yeah. That's totally updated. I mean, a woman with a automatic weapon for a leg. That's great. <laughs> Great one that. way to put it. <laughs> killing, uh, killing zombies with helicopter blades. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's funny because those are the types of, you know, and this is where that horror comedy thing comes for me, right? And right. I think, and I think it comes down to this. You know, well, we're going to get to this at some point. Uh, the horror comedy, and I love Tales from the Crypt, and I, I really enjoy. Um, I'm trying to think of another one that has laughs in it. I wrote it down. I've got to get to my, I'm not going to find out my notes quick enough, but I think it works only if, and tell me what you think about this. I think comedy and horror only works if it's used to release some of the pressure, but the main focus is a horror movie versus like a scary movie, the scary movie franchise, which is, it's just a parody and it's comedy. And it's just like, what are we doing here? Right. I think that's very, very important. And you're absolutely right. I think if you if you were to make mm-hmm. a horror movie mm-hmm. with comedy in it, you would be you would be correct in placing horror at the forefront. Uh, yes. I, for instance, last night I watched this is not a horror comedy, but Arsenic and Old Lace, if you know that old. I don't. Old, you mentioned it a couple times in your book and it's on my list now. I need to see it. It's an old it's an old play about uh, people, various insane people and murderers. It's hilariously mm-hmm. funny. But there's always there's always that edge of threat. There's yes. there's poisoned wine is a is a theme in the movie, and so yeah. many times you see somebody lift a glass to their lips and be startled or interrupted, or. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's that's great though because that is funny. But yeah, as you said, the threat is always there. Yes, and and once the threat goes away. Yeah. Like it's not a horror movie anymore. I mean, are you making a comedy? Are you making a horror movie? You know, I think you have to add and scream is one of these, you know, uh, it's kind of like a postmodern film. You know, that's probably the first postmodern horror film. And I think actually in a lot of ways it works really well as a postmodern film, because I think there's a lot of comedy in it, but it's also 
ref, you know, it's also commenting on the horror genre itself. But I think that might be one that comes really close to not working. But I right. think it ultimately does work. But that's about as close as the comedies you can get, I think. Yeah, and it's been used in different ways in different horror comedies. There's uh, something I just recently saw, um, a 1980 film by Sammo Hung of Hong Kong called mm -hmm. uh, Encounters of the Spooky Kind, which mm -hmm. is a horror film, a comedy, and a martial arts epic, all three at the same time. It's too much. It's the best. It's too much. It's sensory, over <laughs> sensory overload. Yeah, it might, be, it might be too much. Here's the thing. I think you should do... If you do three things, you know, it's like the man who catches two rabbits, chases two rabbits, catches neither. Like you either you have to do one thing really well. Right. And I'm not sure you can do all three well, but who knows? Uh, well, look, with a name like Sam O'Hung, that's a pretty cool name. <laughs> uh, maybe he can maybe he can do it, you know, but right. um, but, you know, I, I, I realize I'm kind of a hypocrite here because in my notes here, I forgot Ghostbusters and Gremlins. You could classify them as horror comedies. And I think there are some legitimate scares in Ghostbusters, although it's clearly a comedy first. Right. And I think Gremlins is the same way. But those might be the only two movies where I think you can have it be mostly a comedy, but still manage to get some scares in there. Maybe Little Shop of Horrors. I think you could also put that in there as oh, well. Oh, that's true. Yeah, very true. You know, but it's hard is what I'm saying. It's very difficult oh, yeah. to pull off. You know? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, so so I don't know if the, I mean, I don't know. So what let, in closing here, what is your favorite? Let's get to the subgenres. I want to end this with, with oh, subgenres okay. here. Okay. So uh, I'm going to go down my full list and I want you to tell me what your favorite one of these of this this list is. So okay. I have Psycho Biddy, uh, French guy. You say it. Uh, Gallo. Giallo. 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 Uh, Giallo. Eco horror, folk horror, luchador films, rancho gothic, kaiju uh, um, Aero Guru, Splatter Film, J Horror, Canucksploitation, Ozploitation, Xmasploitation, Holiday, which is kind of like holiday horrors, J Horror, Torture Porn, New French Extremity, and Splatstick. Favorite one, Gun to Your Head, uh, movie style. For all, for all those. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you can pull one out of your hat. If you've got a secret one that I, don't, that I, I missed, you can pull that one out too. Uh, well, okay. You've got to so, explain what it is, though. Uh, Giallo, I would probably say, and I'm checking. I'm I'm cheating. I'm looking at my own book. <laughs> I uh, see you. I see you cheating. I wasn't going to call you out on it, but I see you. Blood over and there. Black Lace from 1964 uh -huh. is an excellent Giallo. Um, okay. And the Psycho Bitty, which is also also called Hag Exploitation, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever yep. happened to Baby Jane was probably the yep. best of that. Yeah, uh, Kaiju, of course, I always will love Godzilla. I have a dear friend who worships godzilla has mm -hmm. a kind of a godzilla house so oh. very strange uh okay. let's see uh da, 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 da. so those are your top three those are your three favorites yeah and right. oh folk, folk horror uh the wicker man oh my god the yeah. wicker man forget it and it's the 50th anniversary of wicker man nobody everybody's talking about the exorcist but nobody's talking about the wicker Oh, Wicker Man's great. That's yeah, I mean, yeah. I love Wicker first, Man's pretty first good. Wicker, not the Nicolas Cage Wicker it's Man. It's always it's always the first. It's yes. always the first. Except uh, no substitutions. I, I agree. Uh, well, so I want to. Do you have ten minutes to talk about post horror? I want to talk sure. about the, the. You got ten minutes. Okay, so let's let's end it here. We're gonna um, we're gonna we're gonna. This is the end of our Halloween episode. Uh, but but they, you know I, I love this book. It's called Horror Unmasked. So how can people find it? How can people find you so they can learn more? Okay. Well, if you want to buy it, you just go to Amazon and type the title in, and it'll take you right there. And you can use the magic of modern technology to have it sent to your home free of charge. It's amazing. Uh, and if you want to find out about me, I'm at bradwiseman.com. And what about social media so people can find out who's died uh, <laughs> recently? See. You can do hashtag obit patrol. Okay. That, that will lead you to all the, the obituary listings. And I'll make sure to have all the lists up, your, your Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all the oh, stuff you, you want up. Uh, I'll, I'll put it up on the website. Uh, and, of course, if you want to find this show, it's fascinatingnouns.com, and you can find us on social media. We are on X, formerly Twitter, uh, at Fascinating Noun, or on Facebook, at Fascinating Nouns. Uh, that's where you can find us. You can find more about this show. Brad, 
this has been fantastic. I love horror movies, and there's nothing I love more than talking about them, especially in this time of year. Uh, so thank you so much for being on the show, and, and uh, thank you for, for doing this. Well, sure. Well, thank you. Your questions were great, and it was a great talking to you. It was just very, a very pleasant experience. Thank you. Well, thank you. I like that. Uh, well, I want to thank you for being on the show, and I want to thank everyone for listening. Have a good night. Fascinating Nouns is a Glencoe production and is hosted and produced by me, Daniel J. Glenn. The show producer for this episode was Sarah Brandt. The Fascinating Nouns introduction was produced by Daniel J. Glenn and E.A. Barrientos with music and sound design written and performed by E.A. Barrientos. And I'm guessing after listening to this, you never want to miss another episode. You're going to want to subscribe. We are on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, and we even have links right there on our show website, which is fascinatingnouns.com. You can find all the links right there. And let's say you don't have a favorite podcasting platform. That's no problem. You can listen to every episode right there on the website, which is once again, fascinatingnouns.com. And while you're there, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. It's a great way to learn more about the episodes that you're listening to, find out about upcoming episodes, and to just keep in touch with the community. It's right there on the website. Speaking of community, there's no better way to stay in touch than on social media. And you can find links to our show's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and YouTube pages right there on the front page of FascinatingNouns.com. And speaking of YouTube, there's a video version of this episode there right now, uh, as well as other past episodes and all future episodes. It's going to be right there, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. It's a great way to see all the guests and, uh, you know, check it out live and in person. Feel like you're there in studio. Great way to do it, youtube.com backslash Daniel J. Glenn. And finally, if you like this show, you're going to like everything that I do. Go to DanielJGlenn.com and check out all of my projects and see what's going on. Once again, thank you for listening. End of transmission.